Well, good morning again. It's, uh, it's good to be able to uh, preach for the 13th time this week. <clears throat> You'd think I should have lots of practice. The energy is, is uh, a little low, but this, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But uh, I know that the spirit will give uh, what I need one more time to preach this morning. And so I'd invite you to bow with me and let's ask God to bless his word. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, what we are just reminded of, the power of your word. That even in our weakness, even in our flesh, even when we're hungry, when we're feeling down, when we're feeling lonely, in all of these times when the enemy comes to test us, to tempt us, to believe the lie rather than the truth, your word, your truth has power. And that by the Holy Spirit, when we choose to speak it and to claim it, you will give us the victory. And so, Father, this morning, as we continue to dive deeper into this subject, I pray that you would give me the the energy, give me the words, and we pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts to hear, to receive, and to leave here today encouraged, built up, and fortified in the spiritual battle in which each one of us is engaged every single day. Pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. There's a story about a man who went to see his counselor about a personal problem. And he went to the counselor and he said, I have a real struggle. I feel as though I'm violating my conscience. You know, I'm not being completely honest with myself. I'm living a compromised life. I'm living a broken life. And so hearing his struggle and his problems, the counselor replied, Well, should we begin to see about strengthening your self-discipline and your willpower? Well, the man thought about that for a moment and then finally he replied, No, what I'd like to talk to you about is weakening my conscience. He was tired of that pesky conscience bothering him. Does anyone remember the movie uh, Pinocchio? Does anyone remember that movie? You remember the conscience in in Pinocchio? Who Who is Pinocchio's conscience? Jiminy Cricket, that's right. So in essence, this guy, he wanted to squish Jiminy Cricket. Just get rid of that frog altogether. That reflects our age, doesn't it? We aren't so interested in developing our conscience as we are in finding a way to just get rid of it altogether. We'd rather go along without feeling guilty about how we are behaving when we know better. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, Paul describes people like this as hypocritical liars whose conscience has been seared as with a hot iron. And so the hypocritical liars part means that they are living the life of a hypocrite. They know better, they know better than what they're doing, and yet they want to continue on in the lie, and so they finally sear their conscience so that, so that the, the feelings of guilt or shame or that inner troubled spirit of knowing I'm not living how I should be finally just goes away. And the fact is, Every last one of us, if if we really came down to brass tacks on this, we would confess that every last one of us would like to live our life as we please. Every last one of us, you know, right down at the the bottom of the barrel, we find selfishness. And, And if we were given just the choice, we would like to live our lives entirely as we please without one other person telling us otherwise, telling us, no, you can't do that. No, you can't be that way. No, you can't say that. We'd like to live life entirely by our own terms. The only problem is we can't. We can't, that is, if we wish to have meaning and deep joy in our life. 
We can't if we wish to please God and inherit the eternal life that he promises. And so that means every single morning when we roll out of bed, every single morning when we get up before our feet even hit the floor, we have to again commit ourselves to the battle in front of us. Because as long as we're in this life, we never reach the place where we can say, there, I finally beat it. Now I'll never be tempted again. I'll never face a moment of weakness again. I have arrived. We'll never face that day so long as we are in this life. And so, I believe, however, that we can reach the place where we can have victory one day and one temptation at a time. We can never say, I'll never be tempted or or tested again, but we can say, this day that's in front of me, I will have victory one moment, one hour, one temptation at a time. So, if having victory over temptation in your life interests you, if you desire to strengthen your your will and your self-discipline rather than just weakening and getting rid of your conscience, then I want to share with you two viewpoints this morning that I believe will help you to do just that. Now, we read the passage earlier. James speaks to this issue, and I invite you to turn there with me in your Bibles. If you have them, James chapter 1 and verses 12 to 18. Now, the first thing I want to draw for your attention is this. Temptation has a purpose. Temptation has a purpose. It all depends on whose viewpoint you are looking from. Now, the first temptation is the most, pardon me, the first viewpoint on temptation and its purpose is the most obvious. And that's Satan's viewpoint. Because, of course, when we hear the word temptation, we immediately think of the negative. We think of of sin and giving in to sin. And so, for Satan, the purpose of temptation is obvious. He is first introduced to us in the scriptures in, in Genesis as the tempter in the form of the serpent. And we see there that, of course, the purpose of his temptation for Eve in the garden is that she would give in, eat the forbidden fruit, which would eventually lead to death. And listen to what James chapter 1, verses 14 and 15 says about that. Verse 14, each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Now, if we go back to the garden, Eve, at that point, we we must recognize she did not yet have evil desire. Because remember, they were created innocent. They did not yet have the knowledge of good and evil. So when the time of desire came, her, her desire was not evil at that point. But she still had desire. And we must recognize then that desire in and of itself is not a bad thing. In fact, God has given us desire and he uses our desire to draw us to himself. And so desire in and of itself isn't wrong. In fact, we see so many temptations. Satan takes a desire that in and of itself is not wrong, but he does something and he gives it the smallest twist. In the, in the area, one of the greatest twists that, that Satan has used throughout history and, of course, in modern times is in the area of sexual desire. Now, so often as a church, we've made the, the mistake of, of, 
of kind of painting all sexual desire with the same black brush. It's all evil. But the truth is, it's not. God actually wired us with sexual desire. It's, it's, in, it's in our DNA. He imprinted this on us. And so the desire in and of itself is not what's wrong. It's the twist that Satan gives to it. And the twist is, of course, always pursuing the desire and the fulfillment of the desire in parameters that are outside of God's will and God's design. His design for sexual desire to be filled is within a committed, lifelong marriage between one man and one woman. But Satan takes that desire, he gives it a twist, and we've seen all the directions that it goes in. And so now we come back to Eve. And so here, Satan took Eve's natural and good desire of just wanting good fruit. She enjoyed good fruit to eat, and she had a desire for more of it. It wasn't wrong. But then he took that good desire and he planted the seed of doubt within it. The doubt that would lead it to becoming an evil desire. That when finally she and Adam gave into it, it would lead them to spiritual and physical death. It would lead to separation between them and the Father. It would lead to the the decay and the demise of almost, well, of the entire world. And it influenced all of their children and all of their descendants to follow, you and I included. And 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says of Satan and how he goes about using what desires God has originally given for good and giving them a twist. And he says of him that he goes about as a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And this is Satan's ultimate purpose for every temptation in your life, is to devour you. Every sin that comes your way, every temptation that comes your way, whether they're big ones or whether they're just small, every last one of them, his purpose is he wants to incrementally build them into your life, compromise, give in until the point of final destruction and separation from God. And of course, he uses all sorts of enticements. There's almost always promises of some form of immediate pleasure or gratification. That's what he did with Eve. God knows that if you eat of this fruit, you will become like him, knowing good and evil. So there was the enticement, some immediate gratification, and she gave in. But of course, God's word was true. The end result is still death. No matter how good it looks, the end result, when given into, is always the same. I want to share with you a story that I've shared once before years ago about a boy and his dog. And the story begins with a five-year-old boy, and he's meeting the new family dog for the first time. The dog is a German shepherd, not quite a year old, and he just loved her immediately. Now, of course, the first order of business whenever you get a new family dog is bestowing it with a name. Because up until receiving a name, it's still an outsider. It's still just the new puppy. But once you give it a name, it becomes a member of the family. And so this is a very important process. And when there's more people involved, more than one cook in the kitchen, well, name giving can become problematic, as some of you may know. It's not just, it's not just as easy as saying, yeah, we'll pick this name out of a hat, although that might not be a bad idea. So many names were suggested. Everyone in the family had their own ideas of what the name should be until finally the father looked at the five-year-old son and finally asked him, because he hadn't given his suggestion yet, what do you think the, the dog's name should be? And the boy was a little surprised by the question. 
But after a moment's thought, he said, Candy. Its name should be Candy. Well, everyone thought that was kind of a funny name, but Dad said, It sounds great, and that became its name. And from then on, the boy and Candy did almost everything together. Tobogganing in the winter, bike rides and rafting in the pond during the summer. Pellet gun hunting, going for sparrows together, was one of their favorite activities. And every adventure, big or small, would find the two of them together. Like any good dog, if she was nowhere to be found, a sharp whistle would bring her running at full gallop. It's no exaggeration to say that from age five and onward, they grew up together. But of course, dog years go by much more quickly than human years. And by the time the boy had grown into a teenager, Candy had aged considerably. And she wasn't quite as keen to chase the dirt bike or go for long bike rides anymore. But going sparrow hunting, that was still something that she had enough energy for. Now, one winter day, the boy had gone out sparrow hunting, and he whistled for Candy to come along. She slowly trotted over, but didn't seem keen on joining him that day. Not thinking too much of it, he headed out on his own, and the dog headed back for its favorite place, lounging in front of the house. Now, like most farm dogs, the family would feed it leftover table scraps, and friends would even save them in little plastic bags to bring out to the farm for the dog. These were stored safely in the, in the garage, and so the family always had to remember to keep the garage door closed and make sure it was latched. Or, Candy, being the smart dog that she is, would get in by nosing open that door and finding the table scraps and making a mess of them. Well, unbeknown to the boy, when he had left the garage to go sparrow hunting, he had pulled the door closed behind him, but he had not checked to make sure that it had firmly latched. And so Candy, who had pulled the trick a hundred times before, stayed behind, knowing the door wasn't latched, and then jumped up against the door, pushed it open, and promptly proceeded to find her way in to the bags of table scraps. In the meantime, the boy had been out sparrow hunting for over an hour. And finally, when he had decided that he'd had enough, he headed back to the house. As he approached the garage, however, he saw Candy lying down outside. And as he had done a thousand times before, he gave a quick whistle. But she didn't give up. Then he called her name, fully expecting her to jump up and greet him for a good scratch behind the ears. But again, she didn't. And again, more urgently, he called his name, her name. And still, she did not stir. Suddenly, a chill gripped him as he realized something was wrong. And so he sprinted to her side, and he found her sprawled out motionless. And there, draped over her head, was a tight-fitting plastic bag. And there were signs of Candy's struggle where claw marks ran up and down the outside of the bag. She had desperately tried to get that bag off her head. But she had been unsuccessful. And so the boy frantically pulled the bag off her head, hoping against hope that it wasn't too late. But it was. His dog had suffocated, and she was gone. Her desire for table scraps, combined with an unlatched door and a plastic bag, were her undoing. And with that, a ten-year friendship between a boy and his dog came to a sudden and tragic end. And as some of you already know, the boy in the story was me. And Candy was my dog. And little did I know at the time, but it was a profound moment in my life. It was a moment that I've often thought back to. 
And I've thought about how there's such a strong parallel between my dog's demise and how sin operates in our lives. You see, like Candy, who hung around the door to the garage, knowing there was something in there she wanted and was always looking for a way in, in the same way the doorway to our evil desires is always there as well. And when we continue to hang around it, and we're always looking for a way inside, we will eventually and inevitably, we will find a way in. And yes, we will enjoy it for a moment. But repercussions and consequences will come one day. One day when sin is full grown. And yeah, we've maybe been enjoying it so long we think there will be no consequences. But the day will come where it traps you. And you can try valiantly to break free, just as Candy did. But by then it's too late. You're in too deep to break free on your own, and it suffocates you. Here again, the words of James. He says, Each one is tempted when, by his own evil desire, he is dragged away and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Now, I'm not ashamed to tell you that I wept, I cried, and I grieved over the death of Candy for many days. But how much more doesn't God weep with grief over the loss of countless human souls that are lost for eternity in the same way? How much more doesn't our Father in Heaven just have his heart broken to see how many are, are dragged away by their evil desires and they think, it's no big deal, I can break free any time, there's going to be no consequences, but it always leads to the same place. How much more doesn't our Heavenly Father grieve over this loss? And so here we see that this, in the end, is Satan's purpose for every temptation in your life to lure you in, to tempt you into a pattern of behavior that will oh so subtly, but hear this, inevitably lead you down the slippery slope to destruction. And so now this leads us to our second view of temptation, the second viewpoint, and this is God's viewpoint. Now the first thing we must recognize is the fact that God cannot be tempted, nor does he tempt anyone. Verse 13, When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Now, although God does not tempt us, here's one thing we must recognize. God often leaves the door open for us to decide. Now, I have often thought back on Candy's death and said to myself, If only I had latched the door. If only I had made sure there was no physical way that she could get in. If only I had latched the door. And in much the same way, I have often looked at temptations in my life and I have said to God, God, why don't you just latch the door and lock it? Why don't you just make it impossible for me to even get at it? Why don't you just close the door to any and all temptation and then I can just walk in victory? Because I won't even be able to get at it. Millions have asked the same question. Chances are you've thought about a similar thing in your life as well. But we go back to the beginning once more. 
Have you ever wondered, have you ever pondered the question, why did God put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden in the first place? Has anyone ever wondered that question? That's, that's like one of those like big questions that when you really get into theology that it's like, whoa, why would he do it? What, what was the point of this? And then, having put this, this tree in the garden, the only thing that could have messed things up, why didn't he then put just this giant fence around the tree? You know, just like this massive fence that goes up to heaven that there's no possible way in it or, or over it or through it or under it. It's just this impenetrable fence. Why didn't he do that? I mean, God could very simply have just latched the door and then giving into temptation would not even have been an option. But yet, he didn't. He didn't. He chose, when no one was telling him what to do, he chose to put the tree in the garden, and then he chose to leave it unguarded. He chose to leave it there with only one guard, one fence, and that was his word, spoken to Adam and Eve. Don't eat from that tree. That's it. That was the guard. Obey my word. Don't eat from that tree. And so we have to ask the question, why did God choose to do it this way? In way of an answer, when Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit at his baptism in the River Jordan, and it descended on him like a dove, the scripture says that Jesus was led up of the Spirit into the wilderness, wilderness to be tempted of the devil. Now, when we examine Luke's account of the temptation, we find an intriguing thought. And if you, if you want to turn there, you can. It's in Luke chapter 4 and verse 1. And here's this intriguing thought that Luke gives in chapter 4 and verse 1. We read, And Jesus, being full of the Holy Spirit, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And then we're going to jump ahead to verse 14. At the end of the temptation, it says this, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit unto Galilee. Now, this is very subtle, so you have to pay close attention. There's a bit of wordplay happening here, but it's subtle, but I believe it's very important. Take note of this. When Jesus went out to be tempted of the devil, it says he went full of the Spirit. But then after he had faced and overcome the devil's temptation, take note that Luke changes the wording, and it says he came back out in the power of the Spirit. So he went out full of the Spirit, but he came back in the power of the Spirit. He went out full of the Spirit, which is good. Of course, we all want to be filled with the Spirit. But then it says he came out in the power of the Spirit, and that is even better. And so here we see that in the life of Jesus, it was in facing and defeating temptation that turned the fullness into power. Dr. G. Campbell Morgan, in his book, The Crises of the Christ, states that we ought to make a clear distinction between the two words, fullness and power. The fullness of the Spirit, he argues, is what happens when the Spirit is bestowed upon us. But the power of the Spirit is what happened when that fullness is tested through the process of temptation and we come out victorious. And so here, I hope you're beginning to to just catch a glimpse 
of the deep underlying purpose as to why God allows us to be tempted. It is a testing ground by which God transforms his abiding presence into a powerful force. A power strong enough to not only play defense and somehow oh, cr- you know, cringing and enduring Satan's attacks and the lure of evil desires, but something strong enough to go on the offensive against the darkness around us. Because look at what Jesus did after defeating those temptations of Satan. He comes out in the power of the Holy Spirit, and what does he do? He pushes back the darkness everywhere he goes. He brings the kingdom of heaven to earth. Everywhere he went, the demons were confronted, they were rebuked, they were cast out and sent running. Everywhere he went, sickness was cured uh, of all types. Everywhere he went, sinners were being forgiven. The kingdom was moving forward in power. And this happened all in the aftermath of Jesus facing temptation, being tested, coming out victorious and returning in the power of the Holy Spirit. I hope you're beginning to see why God allows testing and temptation to come our way. Why he didn't just build a big fence around the tree in the garden. You see, if we want to be strong enough to be like Jesus, to not just play defense, but if we want to have the power to actually go on the offensive against the darkness around us, if we want to have the vitality, the power of the Spirit at work, that when we go and witness to someone, it's not just our words, it's the Spirit working through us. If we want that, then we have to be, be willing and ready to not only face the hour of testing, not only face temptation, but in the power of the Spirit, having the Word of God as our weapon, to have victory and to come out empowered on the other side. Selwyn Hughes wrote this, Those who seek to follow in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ must learn that the power of the Spirit is never realized except through some wilderness of personal conflict with our adversary, the devil. So why does God allow temptation? It is God's way of helping us develop our character, strengthen our faith, and release the Spirit's power through us. And so, depending on whose viewpoint we are looking at, we see that temptation can be used for our harm or our good. And this harmonizes with James' words at the beginning of this passage in verse 12. He says this, Blessed is the man who endures trial. Blessed is the man who endures trial. When you hear the word trial, do you jump up and down with like, yes, trial, woohoo. When, when you hear the word temptation, you're like, yeah, bring it on, give me some temptation. Is that how we, is that how we view it? No, of course not. We, we hear trial, we hear temptation, and we think, no, I don't want to have to go through that. Like, who here, who here has ever taken a course, like a, a challenging course in school, whether in high school or in post-secondary education, where you had a tough teacher? Who of you ever looked forward to the final test? Anyone? Ever? I never did. I, you, you cringe. You, you go towards it like, oh, man, here comes a test. But guess what? Without the test at the end... How would we know if we'd, if we'd learned anything? How would we know if we'd actually passed? We need the test. And you know what? Some of the toughest tests that I had in school, 
after studying like crazy, after cramming like crazy, going in with that fear, but then coming out, and finally, after long, you know, that wait, you're, you're anticipating with some dread, what's the mark going to be, and how much red ink's going to be on my page, but when you get it, and you, you not only pass, but you got a good grade, and, and there's some complimentary words from the professor on the page, the feeling of accomplishment, that yes, you know what, not only did I pass this test, but I'm ready for more. And it, and it completely changes our attitude towards them. And yet, we know that when it comes to spiritual tests, there's still a part of us that always we fear them because we fear failure. But you know what? We shouldn't. We shouldn't because if we want to grow in our faith, we should welcome every test, every trial as an opportunity for tremendous growth. Blessed is the man who endures trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. We all want that, don't we? We all want the crown of life. We all want the blessing of having stood the test. But how can we stand the test without facing the test? Now, this is the point at which we usually object and say something like, but what if it's too much? What if the test is just too much? What if it's too hard? Well, this is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 10.13. He says this, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not allow you to be tempted beyond your strength. For with the temptation, listen to this, for with the temptation will also be provided the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. This is a promise. This is God's word. With every temptation is provided the way of escape. Isn't that a great word? So we need to keep the perspective that God does not allow us to be tempted or tested beyond the point of no return. But one important distinction we must note, the strength for victory does not come from ourselves. The strength for victory comes through calling on the name of the Lord Jesus for help in our time of need. Our call to worship today says that so clearly. The psalmist writes, I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Because he turned his ear to me, I will call on him as long as I live. Does that sound like a one-time event? Just one test and then it's smooth sailing? No. He recognized he gave me victory one time. I'm going to keep calling on him again and again, day after day. As long as I live, I will call on the Lord. And even we see with the Lord Jesus, it says at the end of the testing, the devil left him for a season. He left him for a time, but guaranteed he was back later on. And so we must recognize with every test is an opportunity for growth. But that doesn't mean there won't be more down the road. But with every one and every victory, God's power is growing within us. His strength increases. Our faith grows. And we keep calling upon him. In his novel entitled The Patience of a Saint, the author Andrew Greeley has the central character whose name is Red Kane. And Red Kane, he's a rough, hard-living reporter in Chicago. And then Cain undergoes a dramatic conversion experience, which he describes as being zapped by God. However, after this life-changing spiritual breakthrough, in the aftermath of it, 
instead of things getting better for him in his life, they actually start going from bad to worse. First, his family turns away from him. Next, he loses his job, he gets fired, and finally, a novel that he had written. Everything that he'd pinned his hope on was the success of this novel, but finally, publisher after publisher rejected it. And frustrated and disgusted with what he considered as being let down by God, he goes to his pastor and he seeks some assurance that God is going to reward him for changing the direction of his life. But his pastor tells him, The Lord offers no guarantees. Your novel may be rejected again. You may not find another job. And reconciliation with your family may take a long time. Afraid that he might lose everything. And hearing these words, Red Cane blurts out, Well, if God expects that kind of courage from anyone, then God should provide some guarantees. Don't you ever wish that God just gave you some guarantees? Just obey him and everything will be smooth sailing? He doesn't provide those sorts of guarantees. But there's one guarantee that he does give. And this is the one that you can take to the bank. That though God does not guarantee to keep tests away from us, though God does not guarantee that no temptation will ever come our way, God's guarantee to us is this. In every test... He will be with you. In every test, to everyone who calls on his name, he will grant the strength to endure and the power to overcome. That is a guarantee. And so while Satan's purpose for temptation is to drag us to our demise, to our death and our damnation, God has thwarted him yet again. And God's purpose for temptations and tests is that we will overcome them in his strength, which in turn releases the Spirit's power within us and builds us up so that we can go out, like Jesus, against the darkness around us. So, think about it this way. If you're thinking, like, Lord, I I want more power to actually go out and make a difference in this world for you, then look at the next temptation you face as tremendous opportunity to do just that. Because it may just be on the other side of the next test you faced. It may just be on the other side of your next temptation that you overcome, that you stand firm by the power of God, that the power of the Spirit for that next ministry, for that opportunity, will be unleashed in such a way that you'll just be amazed at what he's going to do. And so whatever temptation you're currently fighting, whatever tests are right around the corner, don't fear them. Don't resent them, and whatever you do, don't give in to them. Instead, see them as God presenting you graciously with an opportunity for growth, power, and ultimate victory. For blessed is the man who perseveres under trial, because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for your gracious promise to us that though you will not keep every temptation from us, you promise your presence, you promise your word, and you promise your power that not only can we overcome the test, but that we can have complete victory in you and that your power will be unleashed on the other side by the work of the Spirit. And so, Father, we pray for each one of us individually. I pray for everyone here who 
Lord, by your Holy Spirit, may have just shone the spotlight on the temptation that they're dealing with right now. That's a reoccurring thing coming their way, and they feel like it's just beating them down over and over again. But Lord, I pray that rather than resenting it, they would recognize you're allowing that in their life for the opportunity of having victory over it through you. And that through achieving victory, your power will be unleashed in their life in a way they've never experienced before. And that you will work in such a way that they can go out in your power and in your name, just as Jesus did, to push back the darkness around them, maybe in their own family, maybe in their workplace, maybe in school, wherever it is, Lord. In you, we have victory. So we walk out in that victory today. We love you. Amen.